0: Hi, everybody. This is Nick, and I will let you know that I will be at Falcon Saturday, September 25th from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Presale tickets are available. They're $12 and then $15 at the door children under nine get for free come see me and a lot of my other artistic friends and previous guests of the show show off their works and i will be there too selling my comic book the green way and promoting the show come see me fall con at the minnesota state fairgrounds 10 a.m to 6 p.m i hope to see you there okay we're ready uh, matt uh, what would you like to dedicate the episode to
1: i'd like to dedicate this episode to my parents they're past now, and but they gave me a lot of encouragement in my creative and academic endeavors.
0: That's nice. Yeah. It's, were your parents creative, too?
1: Uh, they came from creative families.
0: Okay. All right. That's, that does help a little bit, yeah. right? Yeah, it does. Wonderful. Let's dedicate it to your parents. I like that. Oh, today we
1: have Matt Mintz. It's Mintz. Mintz, M-I-N-T-Z. I I
0: like that, I like that. It's almost like you should be a private eye.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've played one once or twice. Have you really? Yes.
0: That'd be be fun. Yeah. Um, Like a noir-ish kind of a, or is this kind of like Criminal Minds kind of private eye? Uh, I was more
1: of a Criminal Minds. Actually, it wasn't a private eye, it was a detective.
0: Oh man, I would love that. I love that. I grew up on detective stories. I mean, you know, detective comics with Batman. So
1: right. Well, it's actually the uh, predecessor of the comic you're working on, Mercenary Kingdom.
0: Oh my God, that's right. You were the you were the, I was Bishop. It was Bishop. That's right. In the Mercenary Kingdom, where I make I'm uh, with Wes, Wesley Johnson. I'm absolutely doing the, uh, offshoot on a comic book. Uh huh. So that'd be that's, that's fun. Yet you had, look, you have to dress the part, and
1: yeah, it was fun. Yeah.
0: Did you um. You could do all the like the research, like how to cops, detectives, mannerisms, or you just kind of like watched other films, or
1: I watched a lot of um. Oh, what was that? The show with um.
0: So it was the SVU Chris Maloney. Yeah. <laughs> if, you did, if anybody doesn't know, you kind of look like him, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I that and I uh, get um.
0: Wait, you get. A lot of Stanley Tucci.
1: Stanley Tucci. People are always saying I look like Stanley Tucci.
0: You do. You do kind of do. A little bit. Yeah. If everybody wants to look at the promos for our social on our shows for social media, Stanley Tucci stuff like that. I don't know. He got to start. He's got to start a career. He was on commercials for Levi jeans. If you remember that mm-hmm. in the eighties, he was mm-hmm. doing Levi G commercials. Yeah. So, have you done commercials?
1: I've done some commercials. Yeah. In yeah. fact, if you're watching. Uh, oh, I don't know, it could be UFC fight night. They do a commercial for Bosley, you know, the hair people. Right. Now, I haven't had their procedure, but I was one of the people that they used as an example of uh, They the the voiceover where I'm going is like, man, maybe I should just sh- shave it all off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've had that feeling. I've yeah. got it right, yeah. So you
1: can't see my face, but you can see the coming down from my uh, – top of my head.
0: Well, people, I, I think commercials, especially for actors, you have to be almost ready for everything. Even though they'll say, come in and this is the product or like, you know, just do something like this. But I mean, you have to have your hands ready, you have mm-hmm. to have your head ready, everything because maybe your hands are going to be holding something and if they don't look right, they're going to be like, well, goodbye, we'll have somebody else. So, Right. I think it's a good exercise for actors doing commercials. Would you
1: kind of agree? Well, I, absolutely and you need to be ready all of the time because you never know when you're going to get an audition for something. Yeah. I had yeah. a last minute uh gig a couple of weeks ago for uh Cosetas and it was for a print ad with some organization that's uh doing behind the scenes uh services for restaurants and I get there and I find out it's going to be a uh, national billboard ad. So pretty excited <laughs> <laughs> that's what they said. Get ready, right.
0: <laughs> so I think that helps you prepare for, you know, the the notion people think you're an actor, oh, you're going to spend a month researching and everything, and you're going to have that opportunity. That doesn't really happen very much, even especially when you do small films. You have to be
1: Absolutely of, not. If yeah. you're doing commercial work or short films, you don't get a lot of warning.
0: Yeah, it's almost like the next day, so... It's mm-hmm. had happened before running scheduled guests, and all of a sudden, I got a gig. I can't come. <laughs> sure. So, and I completely understand. I, you know, I work in, on films too. So I, I go. I get it. I know. Thanks. Yeah. Good luck. Have fun. So, but I think if you want to be an actor, it's almost you have to be ready all the time. So, not just if you're a hand model, not just if you're, you know, a specific area. Just everything has to be ready. So
1: exactly. Yeah.
0: I always said I was going to be. I was in pre-production to have a movie with three teenage girls and they do stage acting they don't really do film and they just it's i told them you know you're far away you're in movies you want to care you want to before we start shooting get ready for your face treatments do manicures really perk you know because if you have a blemish on your face but you don't have time to <laughs> cut it or end it so i think it's 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 wonderful those those things with actors like you have to take care of yourself but it looks like mm-hmm. it's a of kind of thing, but it's part of the job. You have to.
1: Right. You are your own product.
0: Yeah. So outside of commercial works and doing mercenary kingdoms, <laughs> <laughs> you've been pretty active.
1: I've been reasonably active. Okay. Um, ever since about 2012, when I started down this path, which is an interesting story in itself, I've been okay. taking acting classes from Bill Cooper and most recently from John Swanbeck and they've really helped me develop my craft and how to appear on screen on on camera.
0: Yeah, not just know where your mark is,
1: but right, yeah. right. That's the least of it. <laughs> yeah. That's actually the least of it.
0: Right. Yeah. So you started in 2012. That's pretty relatively new because you're not a young puppet. No, you know? no, I, neither am I. Right. Yeah. No,
1: I'm 56 now, and I started in 2012. I moved to the Minneapolis area. Uh, about 10 years ago, 2011. And I was looking for work. I came here to be close to my kids, uh, didn't have a job when I came here, didn't know anybody. So I was having trouble looking for for work and a friend of mine that I made here suggested I take an improv class because it really helped her with business communications. Yeah. So I did that, at Stevie Rays, a plug for Stevie Rays comedy cabaret, a fantastic place to learn improv if you haven't done it yet. Stevie Stevie Rays. Stevie Rays Comedy Cabaret in the Chan Dinner Theaters, Chan Chanhassen. All right, yeah. Fantastic place to learn improv.
0: If the listeners are listening, Chan is where Prince's complexes compound. Absolutely. Prince, yeah. That's Absolutely. The same place, so. So you went to re-
1: Stevie Ray's comedy cabaret, and what he helped me with was tremendous. It helped my communication skills, really helped me open up. I was really kind of closed down, and they helped me really expand, get in touch with my emotional range, and be able to speak and present at a, a much wider range of emotion. Right, yeah. yeah, and then I had the idea and, and I actually turned out that people thought I was actually funny so I kept going with the improv for a couple of years yeah you uh,
0: it's the barometer you could think you're funny but you have to make sure yeah
1: yeah <laughs> uh, other people were saying that I was funny and <laughs> that helps it, it did help yeah. and then I thought you know what I want to try acting and then just on a whim I looked in Craigslist for under crew needed and there was this uh, people were they were looking for actors for a a music video for the background story, not not the music part. Definitely don't want me doing that. But the background <laughs> story on the music part, and I um, auditioned for it, and I initially auditioned for a priest, some fairly quiet guy for you, like you know, look the part. Right, right. You can do uh, a little bit of the scenery. That, that's right. right and in fact, I do play a priest in some other films later on, but they ended up casting me as a pretty bad guy. And okay, all the, right, all right. the music video was, it was shot by Terrell Lamont, a very talented uh, director and filmmaker. The musical artist was called True Serva, T-R-U-S-E-R-V-A. And he's a, a Christian hip hop artist. And the song was called uh, Who I Am. And if you Google True Serva, Who I Am, you can find that on YouTube. Okay. And it was my first acting gig ever. And, I had to do some stage fighting, and the person that I was fighting with was. Does
0: it mean like like a stunt fighting? Yeah, yeah stunt, okay, right, stunt fighting. To,
1: okay. Yeah, so it was a music video that required some stunt fighting. I played a very bad guy, a um, basically wearing a wife beater. <laughs> And right. evil stepfather. Now I really want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> and I do some bad things yeah, yeah. Um, because I'm just a drunken bad person. And But the story is about this young woman who's caught up in addiction and prostitution. And it was done in conjunction with an organization called Breaking Free. Okay. St. Paul area that helps young women get out of uh, addiction and prostitution. And I played the basically the the source of this person's um, problems because okay. she was right. abused.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, it, acting, you it's nice. Everybody wants to play the bad guy kind of sometimes. Right, but, yeah, right.
1: But I'll, I'll never forget this. So this is my first acting experience ever. And I've done a lot of work behind the camera. I've been a photographer since I was 16 years old yeah. and done some, some video work. But this is my first time in front of the camera. And I never forget looking over the left, it's like, I like this. <laughs> I like being in front of the camera. And, uh, you know, that's... It is what it is. That's how it started. Yeah. Right, that's, yeah. how, that's how it started. And I sold the role so much that the the guys behind the camera were, like, freaked out. like Because I was really, like, pretending to... Looking like I was beating up this person.
0: Yeah, you really sold it.
1: I sold it. Yeah. And... It was so powerful. The first time I watched it, I actually burst into tears because you see, you hear stories like this, but then when you see your actual face, it's you doing it. Yes. Right. And, uh, and people that didn't know me that well said th- they didn't like me because they thought, where did that come from? He must be that mean person. You know, and that's where acting comes from. You you bring to mind some other experience. And, yes. and and portray that, and then the content of the video maps it on to what they think it is. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, people always say that acting is almost like you put on a, a she, like a, a layer, or you cloak yourself, but it actually is just coming out.
1: Right, yeah. right. You, you, the more you try to act, the more you look like you're acting, and you don't want to look like you're acting. Right. Yes,
0: so I said it, I said it uh, on a previous show of Burt Reynolds' favorite when he finally met Spencer Tracy. Uh-huh and he's like i you inspire me i wanted to be an actor and his first says don't the first thing spencer said to him was, don't let them catch you doing it
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah so, so I, yes,
0: it's, it's one of those things of you can't really force it right it was almost as this acting people think so oh, you just say your lines get on your mark and everything but it's almost you have to be a natural
1: part of it right you're not saying your lines you're there's the content behind them, the emotion, and then you're just delivering the lines yeah. almost effortlessly.
0: Right. Um, and it does seem, me being a writer and a few scripts have turned into movies, It it's unique because then you see somebody else that read that script and you re- did a reading of it, and all of a sudden, but you see it on screen and you see it come alive the words and mm-hmm. the performances. It's one of the best things that you can ever. When somebody's like, "Wow, I never thought about that," but that the way he did it, I like that. Or he just, yeah, it's just one of it when it comes alive and somebody actually uses it and they see the scene. You're like, "Wow, that's remarkable!"
1: Right, and that's what I learned recently. Actually, is that the the writer isn't envisioning every aspect of the of the story. That's what they rely on the actor for yeah. to bring the context and the nuance to it.
0: Right, yeah. There's a great scene of um, uh, matchstick men with Nicolas Cage and uh, Sam Rockwell. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain scene. It was just simply a scene of Nicolas Cage on the phone, soliciting his cons to people calling around. In the background, you have Sam Rockwell, who's almost just has energy, like he knows he's scam- he's excited about scamming people, and he's bouncing off the walls. There's nothing in the script that said he had to do it, but right. he knows his character. It's like that's the whole point of it. It's like yes, yes, yes. Because yeah. he's listening in on Nicholas Cage being conning people on the phone, he's like, "Yeah, he's getting energy from it." Exactly, and that's kind of what acting is. You have to what even what's not on the words of the script. What would you, what would your character do? What would you do mm-hmm. in the scene? And that was marvelous, even mm-hmm. for that little bit. Yeah, are you comfortable seeing yourself on film?
1: Yes, I am. Okay, yeah, not always, but. Uh, Cause you know we have things about ourselves we don't like the way some something looks. Yeah. You know but self conscious. But I I like seeing myself. Be on the screen? It, yeah. it, it was it was pretty fun seeing myself on the big screen the first time. Yeah. Who the heck's Billy that? <laughs> <That's laughs> <Staley> Doochie, <Tucci>, right? <laughs> <laughs> What's he doing playing a bad priest? <laughs> oh, one of his early films. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, we were talking about how I got into it in two, since 2012, and yeah. I just started. Doing some student films. I took some acting classes from uh, Bill Cooper here in Minneapolis, and more recently from John Swanbeck. Uh, I was based out of uh, Los Angeles, uh, both fantastic teachers, and doing some uh, local films.
0: Yeah, just keeping up with it. You mm-hmm. keep moving. I think mm-hmm. everybody says if you're busy, it helps. Right. Yeah. Um, when you do, and it's a hard thing to do, especially with a, when you do commercials and small films, but costuming is that part of your process too
1: that has not been part of my process um, for a couple of the short films I brought what I had what the director told me yeah. to bring and it was sufficient or they had costumes yeah. ready for me
0: it's it's one of those things that's an element of acting of what am I going to wear to, to
1: oh sure a role right sure it's or just, even for a commercial gig
0: yeah because it's you know already you have tattoos <laughs> <laughs> right Right. so with photography did it help as before you did acting with doing photography did it help the transition
1: um i would i don't know if it helped the transition but it was definitely the source initial source of the interest because where that interest came from was actually from my grandfather and this is a an interesting part of my story yeah that uh, I have a lot of pride in and, and I'm grateful for it. My grandfather was one of the original Keystone Cops. And, and in the old films. In the old films, yes. He was part of the building of Hollywood. Um, his brother-in-law, I believe, was M.C. Levy, who was one of the founders of the Motion Picture Academy wow, and the yeah. third president of the Motion Picture Academy. So there's a lot of family history. In in uh, film, in Hollywood. Yeah, in especially family.
0: when it's it started and then people are just, it's an industry where people, are, you learned as you're doing. There was right. no school to learn. Right.
1: I mean, I was just, I was less than 10 at, at the time or 10 to like 15 and or 8 to 15 or something like that. And we would go down to Los Angeles to visit my grandparents and my grandfather would take me into his study. And it was just like you would imagine an old, study it was a lot of wood and leather and the walls were just lined with scripts like rows and rows and rows of scripts
0: old old old-fashioned movie scripts oh yeah
1: in fact he was he was uh the dialogue coach for elvis in all of his films which may or may not be a claim to fame Uh, but
0: i i do have something i like to get back to but i have something to insert because uh when i was in film school Uh i was taking film at the university of minnesota um, one of the people that came to talk to us was Larry Stork. This so happened to the person teaching the class, family connection with Larry Stork, and he came on and he talked about how he was the original Ghostbuster, his TV show Ghostbusters in the late 70s. Oh, before. wow. He, and then he talked about how he sued the pants out of him when I got a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> but he was on, he was on, his how he got famous is being on the show F Troop. And he talked about how he met Elvis. Oh, okay. Elvis was a big fan of F Troop. And so he did a show, and a lot of the crew, a lot of the cast was in backstage waiting for him to come out. And he said that act of him being a star in front of every people, but as soon as he shut the door, that deep southern... Drawl. Oh man, I love. <laughs> <Came> <laughs> <out>. <laughs> he goes, because somebody was been training with him, so a uh, dialect, but mannerisms of how to be a star. But then when the doors were closed, that southern boy came back and ah,
1: <laughs> oh, well, maybe that was my grandfather him. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was right. Yeah, could have been. Yeah. Well, Wait, dialogue
0: uh, is another key element of acting. Mm-hmm. I think it's just not saying your lines, but you have to, where you're going to be the emphasis and all that.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then that family tradition carried on with, not with my dad, who decided, even though he got a theater arts degree from UCLA, he did not go into um, theater production or movies. He went into sales, but his brother, uh, my uncle uh, Robert, uh, who passed away not too long ago, did go into uh, films in Hollywood on the production side, post-production side. In fact, he was the post-production coordinator for uh, the Batman series, for Lost in Space, Tabitha, yeah. Yeah, so we would get autographed pictures of Batman and Robin in front of the real Batmobile. Was- if,
0: if you if you could, um, just kind of describe for the audience what's post production what was he doing for the show. What was it? What's his, what does the job entail? Do you know?
1: I don't know exactly what he does, what he did, but post production is generally after you've shot all the material yeah. and you're um, editing it, putting the sound together, and making sure all of that works together now this would have been back in the 60s so the process would have been a lot simpler than it is today or maybe more complex i'm not sure
0: well if everybody didn't know that that batman tv show that ran twice a week Mm -hmm. for a year so you were working pretty much every day it wasn't just a one show a week that was twice a week because you would catch tune in tomorrow right right (laughs) same bad time or tune in next time so yeah he had to be super busy and that show only lasts for like one year, I think sixty six, and then the movie. That was pretty. That's pretty good And then mm-hmm. was another show Tabitha.
1: I think it was Tabitha. That was a little bit later. That was probably the seventies. Uh, but remember Lost in Space? He worked on that.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, yeah.
1: Danger Will Robinson, danger. <laughs> well, they had
0: the the droid, the, uh-huh. the droid, which was a f- kind of a, was like Robbie. Mm-hmm. Robbie the robot, which was used in the movie Forbidden Planet, and mm-hmm. that. I remember going to cons and the comic cons in the eighties and I wasn't really familiar. Like what the heck is this robot? They would have statues, everything. My dad's, my dad's like, well, come on, kid. Right. (laughs) Lost in space.
1: But despite being exposed to all of this, it was sort of in the back of my mind. I didn't, I never pursued theater in in high school or even even college. I was much more academically focused and that's where most of my career was, was in the life sciences, in the pharmaceutical industry and doing business development. And then it slowly started graduating uh, more towards working with people and ideas and then became more on coaching people. And since moving to Minnesota, I became a, a coach in a call center, a team leader in a call center where it's helping people really communicate better to customers. And I did not know it at the time, but I had a real knack for it.
0: Yeah, how do you can navigate Escalations and, yeah. right. And it
1: was really about helping people get in touch with themselves because when it when they're talking to a, a customer, it's they're filtering everything their own they're going through in their own life. Yeah. Through what's what this conversation oh, yeah. is yeah. and helping them, you know, disengage from that. And then then I became a personal trainer, uh, helping people, you know, build themselves up even more. And then since then I've actually become a mortgage loan officer. And what that does is it gives me an opportunity to both help people, but it's also flexible, flexible enough that I can pursue an acting career without the hindrance of a 9-to-5 job.
0: And I don't want to mean deceiving point, but I think acting helps even outside your, the other professions. Like
1: oh, definitely. How you
0: can handle situations, how you can be approachable, stuff like that, rather than being forceful and i don't mean that you're not deceiving anybody but you're just it helps the you navigate the tools to communicate with people
1: it's all about the communication and establishing rapport and trust
0: yeah i I, when i was uh i used to be a football referee for 20 years and we would take workshops just on navigating how to talk to coaches you know because they're going to be fired up they're going to be rooting for their team they don't give a crap about the other team they Mm want to know why they're getting the penalties and not the other team and uh, we have to do, we worked on our mannerisms of how do you approach coaches and how do you stance. And, you know, if you make a mistake, you know, I <laughs> made quite a few. <laughs> and, it's, and it's a simple of, uh, yes, coach, I really screwed up and we're going to move on. And you have every right to be mad at me. And you can say any word you want to me, but we're moving on. And yes, I'll, you can give me a bad rating. If you didn't know, mm-hmm. coaches give rating to other officials for the game. Okay. So, and that gets submitted to your review at the end of the year, especially for high school league. So, yeah. And that's, it calms them down quite a bit. If you just mm-hmm. recognize, hey, yes, I absolutely screwed up. <laughs> but we're moving on.
1: Right. Well, you actually bring up an interesting point, another aspect of my career that I forgot to mention. My initial interest in film was not from the entertainment aspect. It was actually from the corporate aspect and using film in – business to better help tell stories. And one of my jobs, I was a director of marketing for Asia Pacific, and I was managing a partnership between a Canadian company and a Japanese company. And they had this development project and it, was, it had reached the market, but there was so much conflict between the two companies. They were almost ready to throw out the partnership, but they hired me because I had experience in working with Japan. And I went in there and I assessed the situation. And I said, you don't need to terminate this it's a learning opportunity and then what we did was we actually created a a film based on the story of the the development project so that everybody in the company could see what everyone else was doing because the problem was the story wasn't being told and the situation that you just described and in so many companies and, and countries working together they each come with a different frame of reference Right, yes. And if you don't understand that reference, the same words do not mean the same thing to the other party. Oh, yeah. Right. So uh, one of my goals before moving to Minnesota and actually got me the started in the film industry in Vancouver, British Columbia, another strong film city. Absolutely. Right. Was to make not corporate videos, but what I called just corporate films, uh, for lack of a better term, that I wanted to help companies tell their stories. Uh, using something that's now a buzzword, uh, corporate storytelling?
0: Well, I think um, to navigate, I think podcast is another great tool for mm-hmm. advertising. And I, when I started my podcasting uh, 10 years ago, well, over 10 years ago, because I used to do workshops too, and I would tell people, this is the new avenue, avenue for advertising. You're telling a story rather than the sales pitch and the gimmick and the funky noises on the radio for 30 seconds. It's now almost... Um, at the, at the hour long advertisement, per, per, but talking about your development of your product. Right. And even though it's, I've had my friend Nick, who owns Aller Brewery, just talk about, and he owns Aller Brewery. We didn't talk about the product, we just talked about what he enjoys and why he enjoys beer. And he goes, that was, I never thought about advertising is going to go to that kind of branch. And I think that's what it's going to be from now. It's a great promotional tool to not only just give it the gimmick, but it's also telling the story
1: right people relate most to to stories and that got me looking at joseph conrad's you know the the power of myth yes and yes. how myths permeate everything that we do and and they're so similar across societies and how we interact with each other how messages are communicated with different aspects of myth and using that power to or, or using that that tool to better communicate
0: yeah because i think people when we talk about like power of myths and now you've also largely subscribed about the books and everything about the stories Mm -hmm. and how you develop a mythology but it's also there's certain even though every story has a different idea there's a certain myth behind every kind of film that you see Mm -hmm. including missionary kingdom there's a certain mythology to that Mm mm-hmm And uh, we also navigate to not only do the myth, but to get away from what we call the single story. People, when we meet people for the first time, we already have assigned a single story to it. Which is nice because I get to interview people and that expands to the single story. You know, I've met people, the the gimmick was we met somebody um, that was a presentation for us at school when I was working at school and she came from Africa. And there's already a single story from somebody. oh, you grew up poor in a hut and everything, she goes, no i had a backyard i cut grass i had a fa- we had a i went to university and it's that single story thing i've a also, also you feel pity for oh you came from africa and it was third world and she goes no i i was actually middle class and articulate and i she was my roommate you know thought mm-hmm. it was from africa they thought i was all oh, you know poor and try this out no i live next door at mcdonald's and even though it's <laughs> africa so, yeah, I think it, it, for, even from what you're explaining to me, it's it's you navigating your single story, Canada, Japan. You almost have to navigate around that also. Right. And you, the mythologies, the assumptions.
1: That's exactly right. It's right. helping people overcome what they believe their assumptions are. And it's not always intentional. In fact, it's usually not intentional. But it, if you've been given limited information or encountered limited information about yeah. another group, whether it's another company, another culture, another country, whatever it is, our brain fills in the gaps on those, Yeah. on yeah. the missing information. And then we start making decisions based on that. And we interact with the other person based on that. And there were uh, miscommunications in that situation with the Canadian and Japanese company that had been going on for I don't know, probably three, four months, based on faxes back and forth, and I finally said, "You know what? Let's let's just get on a plane, go to Japan, sit down in front of them, and have a conversation." And it was around something as simple as they would say that would be very difficult to do. Now in Japan, that's a polite way of saying it's never going to (laughs) happen, and we shouldn't even try. Whereas to a North American,
0: it's a challenge.
1: It's a challenge. We need to embrace it. We need to put more resources behind it. So they just kept, you know, butting heads on this thing. And finally, I had to pull my colleagues aside and say, look, that's not what they're saying. And I I told them, it's like, they can't say no, but this is as close as they're going to get to no. And once they understood that, the problem was resolved in 15 minutes.
0: Right, yeah, because it's a different navigate, right? To say no in Japan is almost insulting. Right. It's almost a uh, cultural, social taboo. But you can find some of the nice, polite, office-speaking way of saying, that would be very difficult. Let's right. Make, let's make it easy for right. ourselves. <laughs> yeah. right. right. I always, um, when I work with training referees, I always say, don't show off how much you know to a, to a coach. Mm-hmm. Try to keep away from the exotic calls and try to be a smarty pants. Don't show off how clever you are. Just... Make sure the game is running smooth, and if there's an exotic call, make sure everybody in the world sees it. <laughs> you know, because a lot of people don't—they watch football, but they don't really watch football. They watch the ball. Hmm. That's the other thing we always teach: is you don't watch the ball, watch the players. Watch the players, and that's, i think—that's what you're trying to tell us. Is, you know, when you're even with a meeting, don't watch the contract, watch the players and mm-hmm. how they're doing things. It's all about, it's all different perspectives, and it all goes back to acting,
1: right? Yeah. Right. So, at my core, I think my my goal is to be, or, or it's not even my goal. It's the way I work. It's it's to be a storyteller, yeah. and I want to translate that into film. I, I have some uh, pretty, I don't know, called traumatic or significant family experiences stories that I think are deserving to be told. Yeah. Yeah. And but they're so complex and so lengthy, I don't even know where, where to, to start. start. Right. Yes. Yes. And that's been my challenge. It's like it's, with that.
0: how would you navigate you yeah, it's in there. It wants to come out, but how are we going to start? How we get that kernel? Yeah.
1: Right. And the story's changed my understanding of the story has changed over time. So oh. which perspective do you tell it from?
0: It sounds very familiar because I was when I was writing my script for my first comic book and I started in 2008 and then when you start get older and the story starts changing. It's not so much just to make sure things are right or giving you know listening to positive feedback or feedback of how do you want to construct the story but the story changed because I got older. I got different. Mm-hmm. And so eventually I got old when he, when I got older than Batman, that changed everything. when I realized that they draw Batman at 32 and I'm now older than 32 that changed my writing perspective mm. as well but um, I think Richard Donner just passed away had a great story about writing a story and it has to be about pain at all but it has to be about pain because he was talking about when he passed away this intern shared on his social media how he had a great script and just if I had to just be able to just sit down with him, Richard Donner I know you like it and he gave him the. He finally had the opportunity, he sat in the desk, and he was like, here, I want you to read it and think what you like. And he goes, you ever had your heart broken? You ever had a girlfriend say no, i done with you? I ever had your heart broken? No, that's not a good story. It <laughs> <laughs> has to happen to you, buddy, to make it a good story.
1: And I think those things have to happen to you to make you a good actor, too.
0: Yeah, get your heart broken, yeah. I've had a conversation was an actress I won't name her name but she's almost like she said to make it really authentic you almost just slightly have to fall in love with everybody involved not really just like a mad crash like a crusher you just have to love them and that makes it even more devastating because all of a sudden you just go away but you have to make it really authentic it almost has to be you have to really love them mm-hmm. you have to really show that emotion you have to almost really hate really kind of hate the kid if you have to if the you know, you have to almost be really menacing right really have to find something that makes you really menacing to be
1: authentic yeah, yeah. absolutely
0: so you still with the photography you still working with
1: um, not quite as much my gear is a little bit gotten a little too old and needs to be replaced but uh, what I have done I did a lot of work with the Twin Cities Film Fest oh yeah yeah. That's been a fantastic organization. If people aren't familiar with that, definitely check them out, get involved. Uh, they're in their 10th year now, 11th year, I think.
0: Yeah, right, when you came here.
1: Right, came here. right. Yeah, about uh, as
0: old, yeah, you've been here, you said in your mm year.
1: Mm-hmm. And I've, it's been a fantastic experience to get more connected to the community, the film community here in Minneapolis. I have so many friends that I've made through the Film Fest, and it just helped me get involved in in the film community in a way that that was meaningful to me
0: movies don't make be get made by sole artists it's a collaboration and you need a group of people that you can work with you know you can't make a movie just by yourself I mean you obviously you can do a painting you can do a photography by yourself but movies you need to find a network of people to work with and I think Twin Cities yeah you explained working with Twin Cities Film Fest kind of brings you to Per people who like the same thing, movies, and want mm-hmm. to work in the same goal, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, how long you so? What do you do for twins? You do the photography for twins?
1: Yeah, I've been working with Dallas Smith, who's the lead photographer there, and taking pictures of their different events, especially the film fest, the actor expo, uh, different gala events.
0: Yeah, with the, all their other aspects of photography and acting, do you want to do cinematography?
1: I, I find it interesting, but I don't think I'd go down that path. There's so much expertise involved in that. Okay. I don't want to do it. I, I don't like to do things half-assed. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm committed to other things right now, such that I, it won't take the time. I, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't be able to do it the justice that that filmmakers would expect from a good. Uh, director of photography
0: well photography everybody thinks all oh, still photography would just naturally transition to not at to all s- cinematography, you know,
1: not at all um, and, and I actually really enjoy Still photography one of the things I've done a lot of is behind the scenes Photos on sets.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you, yeah. yeah Just capturing the action of the process
1: capturing the moments of not just the actors, but the crew
0: those are actually far sometimes because I've done films and been on a film set. That's actually sometimes far more interesting to see people's process of making something than the final product. Because Absolutely, it is. It's enjoyable to see how everything gets, even through the documentation of how things got made, because you know something that took five hours to set up, you only see five seconds on a movie. <laughs>
1: Right, the final product is a very distilled version of it, but what makes things interesting is the rough edges, and that's what you see behind the scenes.
0: Right. Yeah. so they, so they still do the photography, but then the from that kind of area, that kind of Right, yeah. right. Um, so when you when you watch other movies, is that what you're observing? Is the photography and the acting pretty much?
1: I'm looking at the cinematography, the lighting, the acting. And yeah. The the dialogue
0: is it tough because I know with a lot of actors is it is it when you watch just consume a movie just gonna go watch a movie is it hard just to sit and could you just enjoy it without oh maybe I could do something to that or why did they do that
1: no I per- I do pretty much let myself just enjoy it okay take it in for what it is
0: yeah usually because I do film critiques I critique and review movies but I always for the first time just watch it just to enjoy it and then the second viewing I kind of go back. And okay why would you do that do that but i almost just want to be an average film watcher the first time and i think that's healthy rather than just sitting and articulating even though you do films and do photography just sitting, navigating and nitpicking why do they do that when the first viewing
1: right i think if we don't do that it just becomes a job and becomes unenjoyable yeah. it's like oh what's this film got wrong with it or what it i mean, hopefully they got this part right on, in this film rather than just making it watching it and seeing it for what the filmmaker intended did their did their message come across and what they intended
0: yeah it's all about a feeling isn't it mm-hmm. some, I always ask that question you know they should really stop asking it. Is what's your favorite movie because it's hard for people just to select one out of a well, f- million movies being made but then it's also why do you like it I hate that question well it's just a feeling I like it right but yeah I don't have to tell you why. (laughs) Right, yeah.
1: Right, I mean, it could be a poorly made film by technical standards, but you could relate to it at such an emotional level that it's one of the most impactful movies you've ever seen, but it may get, you know, not great ratings because it wasn't technically good.
0: I met so many people that, you know, I have a couple of people, not so many, a few people that love, discarded making movies because they saw Dick Tracy, the movie. It's just that look and that feel of it. It's not a great story. It's not mm-hmm. a great film. But it looked and just something about it made, yes, I want to do that. And of course, it was kind of helps that it was filmed on a movie set, that old-fashioned mm-hmm. thing. But, right, it just, something like that doesn't have to be win all the awards. It could be something like that that starts somebody making movies.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember after I finished my undergrad degree, which was in biology, not in film or anything artistic, I had this um, compulsion to make a film, and I had bought a video camera at that time, too. One of the first... Uh, the
0: old-fashioned, put-on-your-shoulder one? Uh, it
1: wasn't a VHS. It was smaller than that. I think it was 8 millimeter. Okay. And I just had this desire to make a film, of course, about me, you know, my story... But I was, you know, setting up the scenes and making, putting over music like masterpiece theater kind of thing, <laughs> really campy stuff. Right. But I just loved it, and I think that I think it's just partly in my blood from, you know, seeing what my grandfather worked on and what my uncles have done. And there's more people in my family in Hollywood that I don't even know know it's still about. There. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: It's um well like Bill Cooper was on. A show a while back you mm-hmm. just you know you go to LA in the news it's all about the industry that's why you're here so we're going to talk about that that's why it's most important people make fun of it but that's the business the business come that's why they're here in LA mm-hmm. where he goes where if you're Minnesota the first thing they're talking about is the weather because that's what's most important because you want to know what's going to happen
1: <laughs> well most prominent anyway most
0: prominent thing here and people love that's the first thing they want to talk about is the weather. Mm-hmm. Well, then when you go to L.A., what's the first thing? You want? Well, let's beat me, the film and all that stuff, right? Yeah. When's the last time you've been in L.A.?
1: Oh, God, I can't even remember. <laughs> it's been a long time. The last I was... I, I lived in uh, Carlsbad, California, San Diego, North County yeah. for a lot of years, but moved out of there in 2004, then went to Vancouver for a number of years, and then came here.
0: There's like another hot pocket of filmmaking is Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Vancouver, Canada.
1: British Columbia, yes. Vancouver,
0: Canada, yeah. yeah because it's a Vancouver, mm-hmm. just to mess with you, there's a Vancouver, Washington. I right? know, I know. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of weird that it, even though you took a long time to get into the movies, you've been in areas where movies, there are cities where movies has kind of been made. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's almost like it's pulling you to do it.
1: It, there's definitely been a pull there all along.
0: Well, you and I the same way. We started late. We're just late. My mom said oh, to me, too, you're just a late bloomer. It okay, come mm-hmm. eventually. <laughs> I'm not going
1: to. I remember from one of the Oscars uh, shows, within the last 10 years, I don't remember which one, there was a, um, a man in his 50s who had just won for uh, best screenplay and it was the first thing he had written and and that was his comment that he was a late bloomer which I just thought yeah (laughs) it's good
0: (laughs) alright we're going to take a little break and back more with Matt
1: in the not too distant future
0: following the rapid succession of World Wars 3 and 4 plus the hidden horrors of secret World War 2 there's not much left All that remains is a place where folks get together to read and discuss comic books. Sometimes they laugh, sometimes they argue, but they always record and upload their transmissions. You've found one of those transmissions today. Welcome to The
1: Last Comic
0: Shop. Rate, review, and subscribe to our weekly comic book reviews on all the major podcasting platforms at www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com. All right, we're back with Matt, and um, after break, we just kind of mentioned. You wanted to mention Holla's, uh project. Did I, did I say your name right?
1: <laughs> yeah, Holly Saberry. Okay, okay Holly. Yeah, Holly's a good friend of mine. She's working on a project called Broken, and it is a film, a film series about her work in care facilities as a COVID nurse.
0: Oh, all right. I didn't know that. She, that's what she was doing. Yeah, so that's her, what her other. Uh, Profession.
1: Yeah, her profession is uh, she's a, an LPN and been working with a lot of COVID patients. And it's been a very harrowing experience.
0: And so it's, it's called Broken. Um, is it a documentary?
1: It's a bit of a documentary, but it's um, what I've seen. It's it's her story, but it's not about her. Okay. All right. And All right. it's about the system, how it is broken.
0: Nice title. It's mm-hmm. the title, right. Mm-hmm. Are you involved with it?
1: I'm only on the periphery. I've been advising her, you know, bouncing ideas off each other okay. Okay. for uh, for a long time.
0: How did you guys meet?
1: We met through the Twin Cities Film Fest. <laughs> Another great opportunity. <laughs> Another great opportunity, yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: so how, do, how are we going to find, uh, so you're already done with the production? Is she done with production? Or Yes,
1: she's has a uh, um, GoFundMe campaign for it. Mm. Right now, if you go to her uh, Facebook page, Haleh Saberi, H-A-L-E-H-S-E-S-A-B-E-R-I.
0: Okay, if I if I can able to find the link, I'll definitely post it in the oh definitely information box.
1: Yep. She'll it's appreciate all,
0: that. Yeah, so yeah, it sounds interesting. So it's going to be a series. So it's not really just a one hour one off thing.
1: Uh, no, no. I I honestly am I'm not sure of the X ex- actual format that it's going to take. Okay. Uh, she was initially going to be doing a 90-minute feature film, but a lot of people seem to be moving away from that in favor of, like, web series.
0: Right, yes, yep. And then we have, up in Duluth, we have Catalyst Stories They're a nice springboard to get a series developed and mm-hmm. um, move on, you know, something to, for like a 12-hour pitch of just the movies, but something like a continuation process. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we'll get able to expand how you can find it, that project. It seems kind of pretty important to invest.
1: It is. Her program, her project is very important. It's telling a story that not people, too many people know about. And it's how organizations and the government cut corners in ways that are not helpful to patients.
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it's called Broken, if you broken want to find it. Yeah. Um, back to you. mm mm-hmm. <laughs> so Is there another aspects of film that you're interested in pursuing? Do you, like, do you ever want to try like writing or something like that?
1: Writing is definitely something that I want to do. I have some, as I mentioned earlier, some family stories Yeah. that um, I think need to be told. One of the things that... I've come to learn recently, as an evolution of what what's you know my family. is I have a couple siblings who have some uh, serious mental health issues. Okay, yeah, and one of them, or the issue is dissociative identity disorder which I think they maybe used to call it multiple personality.
0: It's been changed or borderline personality. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. But it manifests itself in some pretty strange ways. And there's been experiences with um, one of my siblings to more than another, where there's just behavior that you can't explain and events in their life that they can't even explain. Right. And you can't use logic. You can't use logic to argue with a delusion. And I'm pretty sure there's a lot of other people out there who are struggling with this, trying to understand it, trying to deal with it. And I, th- I think there's some stories in there that need to be need to be told.
0: It's one of the hard things to have a conversation with, especially. Very difficult. Um, because now, you know, it's hard to open up about is something that people don't really want to talk about, especially mental health. Hey, if you have a broken heart, people love to talk about that. Sure. Um, and we always talk about, it, you know, you got to go to the shop. It's almost like a broken car. If you're a broken car, you got to get in the shop to get fixed. And I think the last element is they don't want to talk about if your brain's broken.
1: Right. Because it's you don't not want to as get
0: to the shop and fix it. You just want to like fix the body. and
1: Right. right because it doesn't manifest in itself in a way that it's, that is, physical how you function but it's how you relate to people and people make so many other interpretations of how you behave other than that the brain functioning may not be optimal and that it's you know an electrical problem a chemical problem
0: yeah too much of something not enough of something else because we always talk about the balance right upstairs in your head and if you don't get a balance then then it's too much of something else right?
1: right and and how much of you know, both of them had a um, history of addiction, you know, with certain substances, and that can really throw the brain off. We talked about well.
0: with Robert Williams' suicide and how mm-hmm. it was marked by depression, and that's something true, but upstairs in his brain, he was it was an imbalance. Something was telling his brain, you are being depressed and giving those ideas, mm-hmm. and it was it's a disorder that in his mind was telling him these things. And so when we talk about that you're in the depression state or, you know, or in a balance. It's the messages being sent to you that are not exactly true. Right. Yeah. or Well,
1: they're not true and they're not helpful.
0: Right. Usually it's, we always talk about a well, if it's a problem, if it's inhibiting your life, right? Right. Um, my wife and even I deal with certain anxieties and I always check myself. Is it working for me? Mm-hmm. If it does, then it's not really a problem. know i collect comic books well it's not inhibiting my lifestyle sure it's not i'm still have a money so it's not an activity that's a problem right because i'm able to do other things so i think that's the first barometer if it's inhibiting to have a successful healthy life then that's number one
1: right in my sister's case that would definitely that would definitely qualify
0: (laughs) if it's a consuming thing if you can't get out of bed if you can't get out your home You know, not just protective and follow protocols to guard yourself against COVID and everything, but.
1: Right. I mean, I I haven't really talked about this uh, publicly, but her mental illness has brought her to places where she's had some pretty significant delusions and about public figures, having relationships with her and.
0: Almost like a direct communication. Yeah.
1: Or well, yeah, okay.
0: something like that. Okay, yeah, yeah. And it's not—I would say—it's not rare. It's it's a lot more common. And it's just a lot uncomfortable for people to talk
1: about. Yeah. Right, and as a family member, there's there's not much you can do about it.
0: It's hard, especially when you're a family member, because they're not—they won't—they won't listen to family. <laughs> That's one of the first things, it's hard to have a family member be part of the intervention because a lot of right. people are like, hey, or your friends, hey, you got to dial back, you know, or something like that. Right. right. Why don't you check yourself out? That's hard.
1: Well, it, 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 whether it's a family member or a professional, I think um, mental illness or or addiction, they're both very contrary to responding to logic. And I'm a trained as a scientist, and my brain works very logically And when I can't walk somebody through a logical argument of why this can't, why I couldn't have been there, even though you saw me there, I'm here. It became so frustrating to me that it was, you know, deteriorating my quality of life and I just had to step back.
0: Right. And that's hard.
1: It's really hard.
0: The next step is when he's like, okay, I can't participate in this. Exactly. Because you want to know where the line is of your enabling, you're almost encouraging it.
1: Exactly. Of it. Yeah. Exactly, but they're family members, so you have a lot of underlying care and love for them, and there's nothing you can do with it.
0: I, and you know, when I have a lot of uh, alcoholism on both sides of my family, mm-hmm. and it's one of the things with, you know, all of a sudden, a family outside of the person being an alcoholic starts arguing with them. Well, you're why don't you watch him? It's like I don't have the problem, right? But it's almost the exterior. It becomes almost a family problem. Of now we're arguing amongst ourselves about the other person having an addiction, and that's the other element of mental health. Now, mm-hmm. an addiction is it that consumes everybody's activities. Where is he? What is he doing? Is he drinking? Better stop drinking. Right. It's almost like you're taking on another job.
1: Yeah. That's definitely the case. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so then it's hard to bring back logic to it too, because for the person addicted it, they're not doing it if it, it feels good It was working for them yeah, yeah. but we always talk about the story writing um, you just doing workshops get the story moving or are you just kind of going to free flow it
1: I've just been free flowing it's just yeah. I mean I've been trying to cope with it and thinking about the, at the same time thinking about okay how would I tell this story where would I start where would I stop and I think the best you can do is really, you know, other than um, taking on an endeavor like A Beautiful Mind, well, it's just a whole long story. Right. Of Well, you know, you're indulging
0: me. in his delusions throughout the whole right. story, then you realize that's not the reality. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, as a, a first-time writer, I can't do something of that. I don't want to do something of that magnitude, but I want to communicate something that shows... The impact of the problem on on both sides, right? Yeah. You know, and maybe it's just a, a seven minute film, but shows the. I mean, it's easy to show the desperation and the frustration of it, but how do you also show hope?
0: Right. There's something to go to. Right. Yeah. Well, the people can maintain their addictions because they don't. can't see the avenue to get out, or recognize how. Enduring how painful it's going to be to stop. It's hard, yeah. right? I think the first thing when they talk about with alcoholics is the first thing to tell you: you're an alcoholic. Even though you're going to stop drinking, you're still going to be an alcoholic. <laughs> Most definitely. Yeah.
1: I have a little bit of experience with that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's the first thing I think when I, when I worked with you know I work with people in treatments, and that for, that's we try to establish: you're no longer not going to be an alcoholic. You still are. You're right. just not going to participate in the activities, right? You, know, you just have to navigate to how you're going to healthy. The reasons why, so, but that's the net of the brain telling you constantly why you keep doing it. It feels good. Keep the addiction. It's working for you. right? Yeah.
1: Right. The you know. the challenge with you know um, the associative identity disorder, and I'm no expert in it, but the one of the reasons that people can get clean and sober is the ability to be honest with themselves and somebody who is changing personalities or identities it may be a different identity that's causing the problem sure. so you they can't they're being the person you're talking to may be as honest as they can be but it's not about the right person exactly and that's
0: another thing you have to navigate so it takes a lot Lot of different things. And I said, people who are interested in starting writing, mm-hmm. um, interested in how to craft stories. And I always tell people just start, just start. Don't worry about the rules and the structure or outlines or index cards. Just pour it out first mm-hmm. and just kind of figure out there. It's almost like a puzzle. Empty the contents first. Sure. <laughs> and then we can find out what everything kind of fits and how it, the story is going to tell you. But a lot of people are like, I want to be a writer. Well, just go. Just go do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of other people will tell me, well, you know, I want, to, I want to be a writer. But they can continually pitch one script of theirs where I tell them I would like to see five or six. And that's not just much really see your style, but I want you to see the practice of writing. Sure. And it's almost like being a baseball player at bat. You're not going to hit a home run every time at bat. So don't you know, their first script is don't think it's gonna be a home run. Sometimes it is, you Mm -hmm. know, sometimes it can be a home run. But continue to write knowing that how many at bats you're gonna have. Then people can oh wow, I like this script. But you have something else? Well yes I do. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Do you have something like this? I kinda do. So I think my first encouragement is people with writing, just start. It's the worst thing is nothing. I wanna start. And that's the hardest
1: thing. Yeah. Excellent point. I keep wanting, I keep thinking I need to write the perfect script, <laughs> right? Yeah, but you I don't even know like, what that would be.
0: Yeah, you talked about with being perfectionist, and that's right. That's a natural thing. I want it to be good. I don't, and I think it's making your first batch of cookies, right, or first pancake. Just make it. It's going to be horrible, <laughs> and just rework it and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I, I met a lot of people when I first writing, and I was scared to share. Of course you, of course you are. You opened up and you wrote something. And I got a great feedback where people like, this is really awful. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I'm glad you did it. And this is probably the worst you can go, but you can get better. You're not going to get as worse as this. And that helped, that's far more helpful than anything. And then people who critique me like, okay, your grammar and everything and structure is wrong, but we're going to figure out what works for you mm-hmm. and your writer. I think people sometimes, I like that style and I want to do that. Like, I want to write like Tarantino. Here, Tina's already got that cornered. Why don't you figure out something that you could do? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's, you're at the hardest part, starting.
1: Yeah, but it's, it's a story that, that needs to be told.
0: And it's one of those things that it's, it's not gonna go away. Mm-mm. Like in the, my first script, it was just, that story was not gonna go away, it had to go out. And so people think, well, I have a good idea for a story it's not going to go away you're going to have to write it out some way to get it out get the process going right
1: I mean I struggle between am I whose story am I telling am I telling my sister's story am I telling my experience of my sister's story (laughs) there's so many different
0: so many different avenues like you you, you can do from a narrative point of view of just her her not really having the dialogue but you're just observing right and makes sense to them or something like an observation kind of a thing or you can see from her perspective, mm-hmm. which is tough to do because it's her perspective and mm-hmm. you're writing from that angle. So, right. The other the next thing is so many options, <laughs> right? Which I, I love options, but then the first thing I do when I write is narrow down, right? Yeah. I like the best part about writing is when the story is telling you what it needs to do. It almost feels like you're not writing it, mm-hmm. the story is telling you. That's the best feeling. It's like, wow. This is, this is, I didn't think I was going to go this route, but it's telling me I have to do this.
1: And to get there, I need to start. <laughs> <laughs> that's your next comment, I'm pretty sure. Yeah.
0: Well, I think it's just like anything. You know, when we, something new, something in Denver, everybody, you know, just jump into the deep end. You want to take mm-hmm. your toe in there first to see uh, how deep is that before you want to plunge. Because that's the scariest thing is plunging into something you have no idea what's going to happen.
1: Well, that's a good point. I mean, that's the other the other side of it. Do I want to delve into something that's been painful?
0: Yeah. And the process of writing is going to be painful. And I tell people, it's not, you're not going to have a smile on your face doing it. Right. But the prod, end product is probably what's going to be the most enjoyable. About it. I, first time writing, I experienced, I think, every emotion on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. From anger to I quit to... Man, I'm really excited about it to everything else. To I want to talk about it. My wife, like, just shut up and go back and finish it. Great right. <laughs> Everything like that. So, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I would love to see it. Right.
1: Well, I'm now, now I'm committed. I will do it.
0: <laughs> um, we had a previous guest, Kelly Lampshire Dash. Mm-hmm. And she does writer workshops. And uh, any, in fact, anybody listening who wants writing, she's a great person to reach out to. Because she's another one that doesn't really critique academically. She critiques what fits for you and make it work for you. And I think that's the far more helpful thing. People will start writing, think there's some kind of formula, steps that I have to do, and that doesn't work for everybody. So I think most part, figure out your process first. Mm-hmm. And then what's very, what works for you, how to make it run smooth. And she's a great person to critique that way. Rather than to say, ah, that was just load of exposition. You got to work on that.
1: Well, <laughs> <laughs> definitely reach out.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it helps because with you refereeing, navigating communications with people, I think you have already have a natural sense of dialogue and how people speak. And that was the toughest thing for me is natural speaking. Where I think if you already have a background, you know that how things are going to be said and emphasis, rather than just explaining things through dialogue oh. not to mention you probably read a bunch of scripts also
1: yes <laughs> yes I have yeah. of all ranges of quality
0: <laughs> so do you have before uh, we round up do you have a particular movie that we really enjoy I know I've talked about it, I never like to ask this question but since we have had a lot of experience of working with stuff and talking with you there has to be some kind of movies that really encapsulate you Is there a certain genre that you like, too?
1: I do enjoy the the suspenseful mystery ones. Ones that I don't like are, and it's ironic because I've been in a couple horror films, I'm not a big fan of the paranormal and horror ones because sometimes they feel a little too real. (laughs) (laughs) I've had some experiences that... um, they feel a little too close to home.
0: I remember I met some people that I love making horror movies. I love it. It's a mess and everything. I don't, I don't like watching them. Yeah. I love making them, but I just, you guys can watch it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't mind making them. That was, that was pretty fun. Yeah. That was pretty fun, (laughs) but it's not a genre that I enjoy watching. I do like some of the Marvel, you know, a lot of the Marvel movies.
0: Yeah. It's, it's taken on, well, we're in that gap of, Marvel, superhero movies are kind of like in the 50s of Westerns. You mm-hmm. just can't get away from it. No matter how hard you try, you're mm-hmm. just going to get saturated because pe- the technology caught up to what we've been reading. You can actually see Spider-Man flinging rather than the TV show. He's just walking up. A, you tilt the camera so it looks like he's walking on the building and he's just walking on the floor. So like, right. Even like the Batman TV show, the technology caught up to what we've been reading. So, mm-hmm. of course, they want to show it off a little bit.
1: And I also love a lot of the old films, the film noir and, and the black and white films.
0: That's my alley. I love it. I love musicals. I like the bright MGM musical stuff. Mm-hmm. But if I pick, I want a seedy, dark, black and white alley, and the seedy detectives and little suspense. Exactly. I, yeah. Don't know where really he's going on, and the, you know, you know, a noir is when the protagonist is doing everything wrong. <laughs> Exactly, and the other component is they're absolutely doomed. No matter what mm-hmm. happens, they're absolutely doomed, and the woman's gonna get away with it almost. Sometimes, not all the time. Mm-hmm. but though she's manipulating everybody. Yeah, I love those. Well, the noirs, yeah, it's the backdrop of it came out where everything was of a hope after World War II of back to you know the everything's nice and pleasant and. If you work hard, things will come your way and everything is enjoyable and in the, in the noir it's just like no. It's right. Just, there's an undercurrent of just it's still rotten.
1: <laughs> there's <laughs> still a little bit of that going on. <laughs> yeah,
0: I don't I've I, I've written my paper saying noir never really went away. I mean obviously the little gap of what it happened. Uh-huh. But it never really went away. You know, like disaster films in the 70s, it never really went away, it stopped, mm-hmm. but we still have those coming out those this disaster, mm-hmm. still playing yeah.
1: so Matt
0: it was a great fun to talk with you man
1: absolutely Nick I really appreciate this opportunity yeah. that's been a great experience
0: now you're going to go back to the writing board huh
1: <laughs> yes well not even back <laughs> yeah. it just you gotta get, started.
0: Gets, yeah. get started the worst thing is a blank piece of paper that's the worst thing mm-hmm. it's not even, even a painter would tell you the worst thing is a blank piece of paper so fill it up first and then think about how oh, you're going to what you can do one. Matt? It's not over till the guests say it's over.
1: <laughs> it's over. <laughs>